0: Good morning again. Our scripture reading today is from uh, the book of Acts, uh, selected verses from chapters 6 and 7. Although Scrappy and Rascal did summarize it pretty well, I probably don't even need to read it, because you've already learned everything, but here we go. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the Twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Paraminas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of the freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, and Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. They roused the people, the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council." The lying witnesses said, "'This man is always speaking against the holy temple "'and against the law of Moses. "'We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth "'will destroy the temple and change the customs "'that Moses handed down to us.' "'At this point, everyone in the high council "'stared at Stephen because his face "'was as bright as an angel's. "'Then the high priest asked Stephen, "'Are are these accusations true?' This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf in the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestor did and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the Righteous One, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Jesus prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And that, with that, he died. The word of the Lord. Well, this is quite a scene, and you've probably heard this story before, but as I was preparing this week, I found out a whole lot more about it, and it was kind of had me going off on a lot of rabbit trails, so I'm I'm gonna try to keep this uh, concise here. Well, we are in our series, our post-Easter series, which is, If, Then. If, we're gonna answer this question, the resurrection really happened, then what? How does it affect us? How do we live into this resurrection life now? Too many times we Christians see the resurrection of Jesus as our ticket to everlasting life, our life after death here on earth. But it's much more than that. It's eternal life. What's the difference, you may ask? Everlasting life describes a life that continues on, but eternal life is full, active, and a conscious participation in the life of the eternal one. Pope Benedict XVI wrote, Eternal life is not, as the modern reader might immediately assume, life after death, in contrast to this present life, which is transient and not eternal. Eternal life is life itself, real life, which can also be lived in this present age and is no longer challenged by physical death. I really like that. If we really did believe that we have eternity after today's life, wouldn't that affect how we behave then today? It would mean measuring this world against the horizon of eternity. Similarly, like we view a day's events against a horizon of our entire whole life. It's having an eternal perspective. Stephen was an example of someone who lived a resurrected life right to the very end as his temporary life here on earth. His belief in resurrection of Jesus allowed Stephen to see that his physical death was not a challenge to him, which freed him to be free from fear of whatever was going to happen. The story of Stephen comes from the book of Acts, also known as Acts of the Apostles. The book was written by Luke, one of the gospel writers, and in movie terms, Acts is the sequel to Luke, or Luke is the prequel to Acts. The beginning of Acts has Jesus ascending to heaven and his disciples carrying out the great commission that he gave that through the power of the Holy Spirit they would take the good news of Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection to the ends of the earth. And that's how the church was born. If you want to read adventure, drama, and suspense, the book of Acts is the book for you. There are two observations that I had as an overview of this particular book. First, we tend to romanticize the early church as one big happy community. Chapter two says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread together, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. The name of that church was Utopian First Covenant. All are fed and cared for out of an abundance of selflessness, and the members of this early community were so convinced by the power of the resurrection that they completely trusted each other with their very lives. However, as the story unfolds, as we see in our passage today, dispute emerges between the Hellenists, who are Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. How could this happen? Everything was so perfect. Well, because the church is made up of people. And as people, we tend to mess things up after a while, don't we? I think, what was God thinking, giving us the church? Well, both groups were Jews, but they had very different backgrounds. I think we can relate to that. The Hellenists were more likely to have been reared in the diaspora and they're now living in Jerusalem. They would have been more adept in the Greek culture and world. The Hebrews might have been local people. So cultural and linguistic, uh, linguistics divide this crowd. It's easy to see how disagreements and misunderstandings could lead to this community losing its way. Does this resonate with our experience in the Christian community. Division can destroy unity in an instant. Unity is not agreeing about everything. It means being being united in purpose and mission. The second observation I have is at the beginning of Acts, the community is primarily uh, composed of Jews. And at the end of the book, it includes people from a wide range of ethnicities. The transformation of the community of believers is the result of living out the promise of Jesus. Then he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The church was always meant to be a diverse community. In Acts, this movement, which was fueled by the power of the resurrection, moves towards inclusion of all nations and away from the perspective that made the law of Moses a necessary requirement for joining the movement, or as we say, the Christian life. I have to come back to our present-day church. What are some ideas like the law of Moses, that we see as necessary requirements for people to be a part of the body of Christ. There are certain theological truths, what I call non-negotiables, and in our confirmation curriculum, they're called building blocks of faith. Examples of these might be God created everything, that's a non-negotiable, but how and the length of time can have a wide range of beliefs. Another would be that Jesus was fully human and fully God and was resurrected. That is a non-negotiable. When we read Paul's letters about many theological issues that he had to address with the church, we see that it started way back then having disagreements about what is right and what is wrong, what is theologically correct and what is outside of the bounds of the Christian faith. My point is that sometimes we think that unless someone holds a certain view, especially our view on an issue, they just, they can't possibly be a Christian. We even go so far as to think that unless a person subscribes to a certain political party or ideology, they can't possibly be a Christian, right? Well, let's get to Stephen. Acts 6.5 introduces us to a faithful man of God named Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, we're told. Nothing is told to us about his personal life. We don't know about his family background. We don't know if he has a wife or children. However, what is known about him is the only thing that's really important. He was faithful even to the end when he faced certain death. He was one of the seven men chosen to be responsible for the distribution of food to the widows after a dispute arose and the apostles recognized they needed help. And that really reminds me of our care team, led by Carla Kepler. That's our version of these seven men. Our care team prepares meals for people in need. And if you would like to know any more about that or would like to be a part of it, Contact me and I'll connect you with Carla. I want you to notice the description here, the job description for these men. Basically, it was waiting tables. A vital task, though, for a community in need, an example of how to follow Jesus. Stephen, it says, was also full of God's grace and power and performed great wonders and signs among the people. One commentator wrote, This was not the job description the church gave Stephen, performing all those miracles. But as we well know, sometimes the church gives us a particular job description, but oftentimes God has a wider sense of the call. So true. Stephen's preaching and wonder-making instigates controversy and eventually a conspiracy. After Stephen is falsely accused, The high priest asks Stephen if these charges are true. And his response isn't yes or no. It's to come back with a detailed, concise history of Israel and their relationship to God. He tells them that they have resisted the Holy Spirit, have persecuted all the prophets God has sent them, and then murdered Jesus, the righteous one who they were told about. He is not concerned with his earthly existence deciding instead to speak the truth, as we would call having the hard conversation. And it was no matter what the cost, because he knew the cost. He believed that if the resurrection really happened, then he was free to live with an eternal view. Well, at that, the religious leaders who saw themselves as guardians of the traditions became free. Furious, and in one version says, gnashed their teeth. Can you feel that kind of anger in this mob crowd? Well, Stephen looks up to heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What a beautiful vindication for Stephen at this moment. Something that's crucial to understand is that Stephen was operating out of the power of the Holy Spirit and not his own desire to set these people right. I can see how someone could take this passage and justify speaking offensively, thinking that God needs them to tell somebody that they're living wrong, they need to change, and give them a list of all the things they need to do before God can love them. Standing on a street with a sign that says, repent or go to hell, most likely won't open up a conversation. Well, I know for years we had a dear friend who kept coming at Barry with Bible verses, which only turned him off more. Now, I'm not telling you how to evangelize, because that's up to you and the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is we all need to be in tune with what the Spirit is calling us to do in a particular situation with a particular uh, person or group of people. You see, Stephen had the spirit in him, and he knew that what he was doing was exactly what he was supposed to do. Living out God's truth, though, with actions can be very powerful. We know that Stephen was full of love because while he was being stoned, he prayed for his killers in the same way that Jesus did. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I don't know about you, I don't think I could do that. He was truly experiencing, in that moment, power of the resurrection. We see that Stephen's prayer for these men was answered. St. Augustine said, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Verse 58 lets us know that a young man named Saul guarded the coats of the killers. And we know what happened to Saul as he became Paul. A few applications for us. Has the church lost its way because division has taken the place of unity? Are we individually and as a community aligned with God's priorities? Are we caring for those in need? Are we acting justly, loving mercy? and walking humbly with our God. Stephen dies at peace with God, himself, and the world, even his enemies. By showing us how to die, he also shows us how to live. If the resurrection is real, then we are confident in carrying out whatever God is calling us to, even if it puts us in an uncomfortable place. To believe the resurrection means to live a life free of fear, but instead trusting God for whatever comes next. And we need to reflect how quickly a dignified high court was transformed into a murderous mob. The truth, it can either cause us to see our sin, or it can make us hate the truth teller. I have a friend who can speak truth to me, and I listen. And I listen because I know she loves me, and she wants the best for me. Do you have a friend like that? And are you that kind of a friend? Stephen was able to live a life with eternity in full view, which allowed him to be in line with the Spirit. He'd begun his eternal life before he was dead. The Desert Fathers spoke of a first resurrection of the soul that happens when we overcome our passions and align our will to love God above all. A second resurrection of the body is to follow. If things work right, we go to our death already resurrected. I want to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Everything in this world is but a reminder of a far off country, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have yet to visit. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I need the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found here on earth. Stephen knew that living a real life, the life would be a resurrection life, a life that had eternity in full view all the time and was a life that was lived wholeheartedly following the way of Jesus and that the good of man or people is not found here on earth. Pray with me, please. Lord, may we see each moment through the lens of an impending resurrection and realize that we were made for eternity so that we would radically reorient our priorities today and always. Help us to see that if we believe in your resurrection, then the resurrection power, then we will behave in a way that reflects your heart for the world. In your name we pray. Amen. I hope you keep pondering the question, if, then. If, then. I've been asking myself a lot, and hopefully as we leave today, we have a better understanding of what that resurrection power can mean for us. Receive the benediction. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go in peace, amen.